From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today we'll talk about the election. Now, if your mind jumped to 2020, I get it, that's a presidential year. But there's one much sooner. Ballots start hitting the mail next month for an election that will decide if the state can keep more money for transportation and schools. Also, determining the future of sports betting in Colorado, and Aurora is choosing a mayor. In a race defined by what seem like big national issues, immigration and gun violence. Then, we remember Holocaust survivor Paula Berger of Denver. She shared her story of hiding in the forest as a child with countless Colorado school children. Plus, an international festival in Denver that stresses empathy. Take a viewpoint that isn't your own before you start making a judgment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The 2020 presidential election is already front and center, but let's not forget another vote that's much closer. Ballots go out next month for the 2019 election in Colorado. I just got my blue book, in fact. Coloradans will decide two statewide issues. One enables sports betting. Why don't we get into that with CPR's Ben Marcus? Hi, Ben. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me again. Okay, this is Proposition DD. Some of the tax revenue generated by sports betting would go towards water projects in Colorado. How, how would that work? So Prop DD is a 10% tax on sports betting. Now, all taxes in Colorado, no matter what they are, have to be voted on by taxpayers in the state uh, as per the state constitution. The revenue will go towards a series of water conservation projects. These projects are meant to kind of help usher Colorado through this warming, drying climate. Do you think supporting a state water plan is just a way to get support for legalized sports betting? Well, yeah. It's a plan that had some degree of bipartisan agreement. It lacked money, though, and the bill's supporters saw this as a win-win. Okay, if this passes, do people have to go to casinos in those very specific spots in Colorado to bet on sports? No. Casinos will have the ability to start physical sports books where you can go drive up and place a bet. Maybe now, again, in Central City or... Or Blackhawk or uh, Cripple Creek. Um, but those casinos can also set up mobile apps so you can bet on your phone from the comfort of your living room. Basically anywhere in Colorado? Within Colorado. Okay. Who's for and against Prop DD at this point? The casinos are for it, obviously. Uh, but their biggest opposition may be the ballot language itself. Huh. Shall state taxes be increased by X millions of dollars? Um, casinos are spending money on ads, and they're making this distinction that it's not a general tax increase. It's a tax that we will pay, not you. It's a sin tax, and sin tax tend to be fairly popular in Colorado. We the casinos. Yeah. Uh, right. And of course, that shall taxes be increase. That's the language necessitated by the taxpayer's bill of rights. Right. And the whole point of that language was to essentially scare people off from voting on taxes by putting the money figure in that first sentence. But there is no organized opposition to this? There is not. Okay. Very briefly, why is Colorado deciding on sports betting now, I mean, we've had casinos in the mountains for a long time. Last year, the Supreme Court said states were free, essentially, to set up their own sports gambling program. Dozens of states have already jumped on board with some version of sports gambling, and Colorado is doing its now. Just to be clear, Ben, if DD does not pass, sports betting does not move forward in Colorado. That's right. So the law says that if voters do not pass this tax increase, the whole sports betting program that they've outlined in the statute 
is null and void, essentially. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus talking about Prop DD to enable sports betting in Colorado. Voters will decide another statewide issue this election, Prop CC. It allows the state to keep extra tax revenue and spend it on transportation and education. Right now, Tabor requires the state to issue refunds if it collects more than its annual cap. More coverage of CC to come as ballots hit the mail. Now, hitting even closer to home, towns and cities have questions on this year's ballot. Local governments, the level of government closest to the people, folks can look out their window and see the impacts of things that they vote on. They really shape the direction of a municipality going into the future. This is Kevin Bomber, head of the Colorado Municipal League. You know, this year it looks like we're seeing a lot of questions related to infrastructure, uh, either through tax questions or sales and use tax extensions. Lots of different types of tax questions in general, but infrastructure, marijuana, tobacco seem to be the the main questions thus far. Indeed, pot-related measures are on the ballot in Craig, Louisville, Loveland, and Los Animas. In Boulder, Colorado Springs, Alamosa, and Montrose, they're answering questions about housing, roads, and public safety. Now, about those communities looking to tax nicotine? Cigarette sales taxes have generally been something that were state-only where you didn't have municipal cigarette sales taxes, and that goes back 40 years to a deal that was struck to allow state-collected locally shared. Uh, Since that time, you've seen a couple municipalities adopt or re-adopt taxes on cigarettes but include all nicotine products. And there was legislation in this last session at House Bill 1033 that uh, clarifies for statutory entities um, the ability to have a nicotine sales tax. Three communities have such a question on the ballot in Newcastle and Vail and one in Boulder specifically on vaping products. Okay, Colorado's third largest city, Aurora, is electing a mayor this year, and issues that you might associate with national campaigns are front and center, like gun violence and immigration. The dynamics of this race are really interesting, given that one candidate has a lot of name recognition and the fundraising prowess that goes with. For some perspective on the Aurora mayor's race, Kara Mason joins us. She's government reporter for Sentinel Colorado in Aurora. Kara, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Let's start with why immigration enters the debate. Uh, I think this has a lot to do with the ICE detention center in Aurora. The ACLU released a report this month outlining what it says are stories of death, abuse, and neglect there. How much interplay is there between that facility and the city of Aurora? Sure, yeah. Um, last night we had a city council meeting, and um, there's there's always a lot of people who show up just to talk about geofacility and what the city can do. Um, last night at study session, they were talking about, you know, whether geo and other detention facilities in the city should have to report what they report to the health department when it comes to um, infectious disease and, and disease outbreaks, because there was a lot of that this year. Um, beyond that, there hasn't been um, a lot of ordinances or, or that type of thing. Um, but, you know, there is kind of this challenge of, you know, like what do municipalities do about these private detention centers? Um, so there's a lot of discussion about that, and I can only see that, in, you know, continuing. Continuing. You mentioned GEO. This is the group, the private company that operates that facility. 
Um, who among the candidates has been most vocal about the detention facility? What are they saying that they might bring to bear if elected? So um, I, I think, you know, the person who's most visible on a lot of this is Omar Montgomery. Um, he was endorsed by Colorado People's Action. Um, President of local it, NAACP. Correct, correct. Um so I've seen him at a lot of events. Um, you know, I think that there's a really um, an, an, an interesting divide in Aurora when you go out to these candidate forums. I think people really want to know like where people, where the candidates stand, but they are also really concerned with local issues too. So um, we m- might not hear about you know, a lot of questions at these forums about immigration per se, because I think there's a, there's a, a lot of pressing issues. But um, when it comes to immigration, I think that, um, you know, the geo facility has been has been front and center. Okay. Uh, Former Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman is running for Aurora mayor. He has also set fundraising records in this race Uh, that has to do uh, surely with his political connections, uh, how high profile he is. What are the implications of Kaufman being in the race? It's attracted a lot of money. Um, if you look at his campaign finance reports, um, a lot of donors, a lot of donors um, that aren't necessarily residents of Aurora. No. I think that's um, that's a, a really important thing to note um, in just the fundraising of it all. Um, he is, uh, you know, professional at campaigning. He's been doing it for um, a lot of years. So I think that it just raises the race to um, a different level that we've not really seen in in municipal politics before. Okay, I mentioned that gun violence is also taking center stage in this race. How so, and and how much of that has to do with the Aurora Theater shooting? Right. I was actually um, watching some um, old interviews that uh, and state of the city is that Mayor um, Steve Hogan did in in twenty twelve. This is and, the late mayor of Aurora. Right, right. His death meant that there was someone in the position temporarily. This is actually the election, essentially, to replace him. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that I thought that was interesting that he said is that the Aurora theater shooting will always be part of our history, but it won't define us as a city. Um, and I think that it actually kind of has come to define um, politics and. And a lot of the conversation in Aurora right now, we had Gabby Giffords here within the last month, twice, once for um, um, a town hall with Congressman Jason Crow, and then again to um, um, endorse Omar Montgomery. Um, We have a pretty active Moms Demand Action Group in Aurora. Um, So it has been, I think, a a pretty big conversation that coupled with... um, public safety and, and the crime that we've seen in Aurora over the summer. There have been quite a few um, deaths uh, due to gun violence, particularly of, of kids. Uh, so I think that's something that's on everybody's mind. This is not just about mass shootings, but that sort of everyday gun violence, which we know claims lots of lives comparatively. Uh, you have in this race uh, one current council member, Marsha Burzins. You have some former council members, uh, Ryan Frazier, for instance, and Rini Peterson. And you've got uh, a lawsuit against the city from one candidate, Tiffany Grays. What's the deal there? Yeah, um, you have to have 100 um, petition signatures to get on the ballot in Aurora by a certain date. Um, And she kind of announced uh, late in the game. And um, when they were going over her petitions, they could only get her to 96 signatures. Um, And she, like I said, needed 100. Um, 
and she doesn't think that everything was done the proper way, so she's launched a lawsuit. Um, she's not being represented to anybody uh, or by anybody um, for this lawsuit, so she's doing it alone. Um, and there's no word so far on you know when there is a hearing date. I haven't heard anyway um, within the last week or so, and right. um, um, so we'll see where where that goes. Interesting dynamic in the race. I mentioned Marsha Burzen. She has the endorsement of the Aurora Police Association, the police union. Uh, how much of an advantage do you think council service, either current or former, is an advantage in this race before we go? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, on, on that note, I, I think that public safety is really a, a leading topic in this race. And so to have the support of the police, I think, is is probably pretty important. Um on this particular endorsement, it came really early, and that was one of the things that we noted, um, that it it seemed before even the election was taking off and campaigning was really started, they had endorsed her. Um, and so I think those early that early endorsement is... is notable. N- yeah, notable. Yeah, given how much of the race there was still to develop. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the picture in, Aurora's, uh, in Aurora, which is Colorado's third largest city, Kara. Thank you. Kara Mason, government reporter for Sentinel, Colorado. A routine doctor's visit last year brought unexpected news for Colorado ballet dancer Francisco Estevez. He learned he had a rare form of blood cancer, chronic myeloid leukemia. The thing is, this was not Estevez's first cancer diagnosis. He'd battled a different kind just five years earlier, so he knew treatment would be tough. And yet, Estevez has attained something others only dream of. This is his first season as a principal dancer with Colorado Ballet. That's the company's highest rank. And Estevez joins us from the ballet's facility just before his daily morning class. Francisco, welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. You learned that you'd been promoted to principal dancer last February during a company meeting as you were about to debut the role of the Tin Man in the new Wizard of Oz ballet. And I understand you'd spent the night before in the hospital. What was going on? Yes, that's correct. So um, when I was diagnosed, part of the side effects that I had from my treatment was uh, were that when whenever I got sick, um, the um, the the ailments from the illness were really compounded, and I think I picked up a stomach bug at some point during that tech week uh, leading up to the opening night of Wizard of Oz, and uh, one thing led to the other, and I got severely dehydrated and ended up spending the night before opening night um, at the ER, um, getting fluids uh, with my family, thankfully, but. Uh, yeah, it was not a, a pleasant evening to, to experience right before you went on for a show. And did you make opening night? I did. Um, wow. uh, so with the support of, of my family, obviously, and my wife, and uh, uh, with the treatment that I got at the hospital, I was able to get um, ready enough to be able to go on stage. I actually had uh, the other cast uh, of Tin Men help me out during the opening night. He was able to perform some of the role that some parts of the role that I couldn't just because my muscles and um, body weren't just up to the task uh, just yet. So we were able to split the role, uh, but I did make it on for the majority of the show. Was that hard not to do the, the role entirely yourself? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, as a dancer, you always want to be able to do everything that's put on your plate. Uh, so from uh, definitely a sense of, uh, from the perspective of being prideful, I wanted to do it all. But um, this is uh, not just a one-man show. This is a, a company effort. It's a team effort here. And, um, you know, uh, everybody was happy to be able to pull through so that we could get the show on. And I was able to do the rest of the shows. So, um, you know, I'm grateful for being able to be on stage, period. Your first experience with cancer came in 2013, which was also your inaugural year with Colorado Ballet. Uh, you were diagnosed with testicular cancer uh, and were in surgery the day after the diagnosis, but years of Correct. treatment followed. You were eventually declared cancer-free. How much did that experience prepare you for this blood cancer diagnosis? Or, or did you think, like, lightning can't strike twice? Um... Uh, definitely, I was definitely surprised by the second diagnosis. The first one was uh, a bit of a whirlwind. Um, I think a lot of cancer diagnoses can catch you by surprise like that. Um, but the testicular cancer diagnosis was really one day, we, we uh, well, a few weeks we thought something was going on, so we went to see a primary care physician, and then they referred us to a urologist. And the day I went in, the urologist said, yes, it's, it's, it's cancer and you have to um, basically operate the next day. Uh, and after that, it was uh, a lot of, you know, follow-up visits, a lot of um, uh, CAT scans and just a lot of uh, follow-up treatment that came along with it for years and years and years until finally um, I was able to basically monitor myself, and if I needed to go in, I can go in for a checkup. Mm -hmm. But it was during that lull that um, I got the news of the second diagnosis. So, um, you know, we had gone some, through some of the same um, preparations, I guess you could say, with the first diagnosis as the second, you know, making sure that we had um, options for family planning in the future if we so decided to do so with my wife, Tracy. And... Um, some of those things luckily didn't have to come to pass the first time around, but we had to go through all of that again. And the first experience of going through that process of planning for the future really um, prepared us, I guess, uh, psychologically for the, the second unexpected diagnosis. When you say options for family planning, you mean discussions about children? Yes. Yeah. Correct. For, mm. Yeah. So freezing, uh, freezing um, sperm so that we could potentially have a family in the future in the case that my treatment required me to be under heavy chemotherapy where I couldn't conceive. Tough discussions. How are you feeling today? Yes. How are you doing now? I'm feeling well. Um, uh, thankfully, uh, I've adjusted to um, my chemotherapy. Well, I take um, a daily targeted chemotherapy drug. So it's a daily pill that I take in the evenings. Um, and at first, there was some um, pretty heavy side effects with it, um, including... Uh, the way the best way I can describe it is having the be the worst hangover uh, of your life. Oh gosh, um, to dance the next yes. day, my. Yeah, uh, that's why they recommend you take the the pill at night because you can mostly sleep through all of the side effects. Hmm. But uh, when you're first starting out, it's hard to sleep through something like that. So, uh, you have shivery headaches, um, et cetera, and you just feel weak and tired. So, but I've adjusted to that well, and you know it's a. Uh, it's a fine balance between um, getting the proper nutrition. Uh, thankfully, I exercise for a living, so I always get the proper exercise. Yes, you, and, exer you uh, exercise and then some, I think it's fair to say. In fact, yes. you, your first role as a principal dancer is in the lead for Don Quixote. Correct. I yes. wonder if the pressure of cancer has a way of putting artistic pressure into perspective. 
Uh, I think so, definitely. Um, I think I have a lot more fun with the roles that I do. I've always tried to have that perspective, um, but I think definitely uh, going through something uh, life-changing like this really puts things into perspective and you just are very grateful for all the opportunities that you do get. Um, that's not lost on me. So um, I try and get out there and sometimes when my partners are nervous as well, I try and remind them like the point of this is just to go out and have fun, and mm -hmm. be on stage and try and uh, um, give something to the audience and have them feel something and have that be given to you in return while you're performing. Okay, I want to deviate a bit here and ask you about something that exploded, at least in the dance world, on social media recently. This was in response to a segment on Good Morning America. In this clip, mm -hmm. uh, host Laura Spencer talks about the upcoming school year for six-year-old Prince George. The future King of England will be putting down the Play-Doh to take on religious studies, computer programming, poetry, and ballet, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't contain, oh, he looks so happy about the ballet class. <laughs> Prince George, Prince William says George absolutely loves ballet. I him. have news I for you, that. Prince William. We'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> oh, that did not sit well. Many were upset that Spencer mocked a six-year-old, but the dance world was particularly outraged that the hosts found the idea of a boy taking ballet so hilarious. You know, Spencer did apologize even invited some well-known male dancers on for an interview. Uh, in just the last few moments here, I'd love to hear what your initial thoughts were when you heard about this. Uh, yes. Um, well, of course, I was disappointed to hear her remarks. Um, I think all in all, the dance community came together in a very strong way. And I think that's really admirable because I think it was a very positive moment, not just for dance, but I think it just opened up the conversation about bullying as well. And um, I think it just uh, helped shed light on, um, you know, being open and being inclusive, which is what this country is all about. Uh, having that ability to um, go for whatever you want to do. And I think the conversation that sparked from that was really productive. Uh, even if many people's minds weren't necessarily changed, I think just opening that subject was an important thing to do. And um, I'm, I'm really proud of the dance community for coming together in such a way to be able to support um, anyone who wants to follow whatever their passion is. Francisco, we have less than a minute. Were you bullied as a kid? Um, not, not severely. I think I was pretty lucky. I grew up in Kentucky, but I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, which is sort of like a very a blue dot in a red state. So mm -hmm. there was a very progressive um, uh, mindset in that, in that community and the people that I surrounded myself with would tease me here and there, but nothing, nothing severe. So I find myself lucky to be in that setting and to come from a family uh, which includes artists and that were very supportive of me. Uh, growing up with whatever I needed to do. So um, thankfully, that wasn't my path, but I know that for many it has been. Thanks for being with us. That's Colorado Ballet principal dancer Francisco Estevez. You can catch him in the production of Don Quixote. You're hearing music from that now, starting next week through October 13th. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. By now, I'm sure that we're not breaking the news that CBD is everywhere. It's the new kale, the new superfood, whatever you want to call it. But 
what is it? And how did something that is made from cannabis, which is still illegal in many states, become part of a never-ending national wellness industry spin cycle? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In our first half hour, we talked about the election Colorado's about to hold, the one that naturally gets eclipsed by next year's presidential race. We want to focus for just a few moments now on voter registration because today is National Voter Registration Day, a nonpartisan affair sponsored by election officials. Last year saw nearly 16,000 Coloradans either sign up to vote or refresh their registration. Officials say that was a banner year. The numbers may differ this time around because automatic voter registration is now in play here. A new law expanded the system beyond the DMV, says Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. We passed one of the biggest automatic voter registration bills in the nation which switches the burden when you go into the DMV from the DMV worker asking, would you like to register to vote, to the question, I am going to register you to vote unless you opt out. But one of the reasons that we expanded automatic voter registration outside of driver's license offices is because all too often younger people, older people, people with disabilities are not going to driver's license offices. But they may be applying for Medicaid, for example. As for the party people are choosing when they do register, Griswold sees some early trends. So far this year, more people have registered with a party than chosen to be unaffiliated. And as for how that's breaking down... We have been seeing a slight uptick in Democratic registrations compared to Republicans. That is Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold on National Voter Registration Day. By the way, the deadline to register if you want a 2019 ballot in the mail is October 28th. But remember, Colorado has same-day registration, meaning you can register and vote in person even on Election Day, November 5th. She survived the Holocaust by hiding in a forest with more than a thousand other Jews. Paula Berger of Denver was laid to rest over the weekend. She was 85. In all, she spent more than two years of her childhood in the Nalabaki forest of what's now Belarus, alongside her father and brother. The encampment grew to include a school, an infirmary, a metal workshop, and a bakery. It was under constant threat, not just from the Nazis, but from famine and disease. Berger shared her story in the book Paula's Window, and we spoke when it was released in 2014. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. We'll talk about the encampment shortly, but your story before that is equally harrowing. Uh, You grew up in a town called Novogrudek in what was then Poland. The Nazis invaded in July 1941, and mass killings began almost immediately. And one day, 4,000 Jews were slaughtered there and thrown into a pit. Your family was able to stay under the radar until a neighbor tipped the Nazis off to your existence. What happened? What was that neighbor's motivation? Uh, The motivation was to get our property. My parents owned land that was part of my grandparents' estate, and then my father kept buying land all the time, and he had quite an extensive ranch, and our neighbor wanted to make sure we didn't survive, and he wanted to move in on there. He actually did move in, 
And so his objective was to get rid of us, to make sure that we were gone. The fact that your neighbor tells on your family means that you end up in the ghetto, uh, the Jewish right. ghetto. Your mother died in the ghetto. Um, she, she was killed on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. What were you able to learn about her death? She was taken away, and an aunt took us into her apartment, and we stayed there, and they told me that she was arrested. And losing your malik, pulling the floor out of under you when you're standing, you have you no know, basis, you have no, no, no concept of how to get along in the world. And so I remember they told me she'll come back. And I remember thinking I was sitting in a corner and crying because in my young mind, after all I've heard, it didn't seem possible. And of course, it never happened. She never came back. The Nazis used her for a time as, as a an t- interpreter, a tr- interpreter. Right, right. They kept her for a while as interpreter, and then they shot her in a mass grave with a lot of other people. You write that you will never find her grave. And I wonder what effect that's had on you. We all want to have a final resting place, a time to say goodbye. Of course, I never had that. And the closest I came to is when I went to visit Lithuania about 15 years ago. We went to a mass grave in Purnar, and that's the only place I could relate to is my mother's grave. Because the experience there had been so similar to what right. she, she endured. Right. Meanwhile, your father had escaped the ghetto and was devising a way to get you and your younger brother Isaac out. Early one morning, you're woken up, and uh, you eventually meet this stranger. Who, who is he, and how does he get you out of the ghetto? I really didn't know him, but I, I was told he was a friend of my father's, and he's the one who had brought these barrels full of water to the ghetto. He supplied water. Supplied water to the ghetto, and so... After the barrels were emptied, they put me and my brother in a barrel with a blanket and set him next to me real close and said, you must keep him quiet. And I remember holding on to my brother and trying to keep him quiet, and it was so damp and cold. Um, And he drove us out of the ghetto, and by some miracle, nobody stopped us. How long were you in that barrel, do you recall? Oh, it must have been a couple hours for sure. It seemed like forever. You and your brother are eventually reunited with your father and arrive at this forest encampment. Uh, I just want to remind folks, you're about seven at this point. Isaac is not quite three. And you write, as we strolled through the curious group, bodies parted like the Red Sea. Men blinked away tears and congratulated my father. Mothers regarded us with visible pain because their own children were lost to them. Isaac laughed, extending his arms to all the women. Some turned away from him. Uh, obviously, because of the pain of losing their own kids. What, what were your first impressions of this place? It was freedom that I hadn't seen for a few years. I saw people actually walking around without... German soldiers or barbed wire. It was a very welcome sight. But I did notice about the people's reaction to us. The camp is made up of, uh, and I'll have you pronounce this word for me, um, 
Zemilankas, is that right? Zemlanka. Zemlanka, which are log bunkers. Right. How many people would live in a single bunker? In our bunker, I think there were eight or nine. We were, of course, the only two children. In the whole camp? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that age, yeah. There must have been some teenagers. But the camp was not all together. The the Belskis, Tevye Belsky was a great leader. You know, leaders are created by time and circumstance sometimes, and he certainly was. And he divided it where a few hundred people were in one place and another couple hundred people a mile or two away just for safety reasons. You write that a magnificent horse... (laughs) Interrupted our thoughts. This is just after your arrival. Right. Straddling the chestnut-hued animal was a statuesque and handsome man with wavy dark hair, a mustache, and shiny boots. Right. And this is the the head of the camp, the head of the partisans who fought the Nazis with guerrilla tactics. This is Tuvia Bielski. Right. He was an amazing man, and so he was probably talking to my father, and I was just standing there in awe. And so this, this man struck you as, as almost a knight in shining armor, I guess. Um, what, did you, what did you do for clothing, shoes? Well, I had a little blue coat, that, like a navy coat, that I went out from the ghetto. It had a yellow star sewn on it, but when we were in the partisans, we took off that yellow star. And I had that for a long time, and if you'd give me a towel or a small blanket, I could show you how to roll it up and make it like a boot on your feet. And many times, that's all we had. Was to tie a towel around your feet with string, right. string or something. Right. And then we would use a piece of bark for a sole and make it like a shoe. Members of the camp went on missions either to fight the Nazis, as I said, using guerrilla tactics. They would blow up bridges, sabotage Nazi installations. Uh, or members of the camp would go on food missions. So th- these were missions to take the food or to convince farmers to give a little food up? In the beginning, when people had money or jewelry or coats or whatever they had to barter with, they did. Hmm. But eventually that ran out. So at that point, it was either at the farmer's mercy or I'm sure sometimes it was at gunpoint. I don't know. But we had meager foods. Uh, the sweetest thing I had in, in the two and a half years that we were in the for- living in the forest were beets. My father cooked beets for us, so we'd have something sweet. That was, the, that was a treat. Yes, it was. Your father was on a mission for a month or so, and when he came back, you and your brother were filthy. Um, d- describe your state and how he cleaned you up. He ran away because some partisans were trying to get his revolver, some Russian partisans in the area. He had this Luger revolver. I remember what it looked like because he would let me clean it sometimes. It wasn't like you're going to shoot somebody necessarily, but there were wild animals where we lived. Wolves? Yeah. Oh, wolves were very prevalent in the area. And so when they tried to get his gun, of course, he ran away, and we were left in this really small bunker with quite a few people. I don't remember how many, but I remember sitting with my brother in the corner most of the time, having very little food. And from malnutrition and sanitary conditions, our fingers had boils on them and and our fingers grew together like webs almost. We couldn't take our fingers apart. By the time my father came back and uh, all he looked at us and cried. And eventually he took us to this farmhouse where this woman put us in this tub 
And the only disinfectant they had to use on us was uh, human urine. And they washed us in that stuff and then put lard on our hands. And finally, we pried our fingers apart. Tuvia Bielski, the, the head of the encampment, came very close to shooting your younger brother. Yeah. What were the circumstances? Well, we were in an area that we were very close to populated areas. And he was either hungry or cold or whatever. He was little and he would cry all the time. And so we had to be really quiet during the day because people were in the forest either uh, cutting down trees or picking berries or depending on the season. And so I guess he was crying. And Tervi came in and said, I'm going to shoot him. And my father, without missing a beat, just laid down over him and said, you have to shoot me first. I want to talk about the relationships that developed in the forest camp. Um, You write, hundreds of Jews dwelled in the dense forest, including countless women who had lost their husbands and children. These women gravitated toward men who could offer them protection. If a man accepted a woman as his companion, she became his forest wife. Now, this would not be tolerated, you write, in traditional Jewish society, but there was nothing traditional about our circumstances. And uh, your father eventually finds a forest wife. Right. And and she becomes your stepmother. Right. And she had promised him to take care of us. He really needed help in taking care of us. They got married after the war was over. Her name was Hana. Right. And uh, you write that she was never really all that warm toward you. And that's probably for the same reasons that... A lot of women weren't warm toward you when you arrived in the camp, just that um, it reminded them of their their own loss. The coldness that I felt uh, was something terrible. You know, I lost my mother, and to have any female being as close to me or in any capacity that I could rely on would have been a blessing, which unfortunately I didn't have. I wish she could have been different. When the news came of Nazi defeat and Russian troops came to your rescue, uh, Tuvia Bielski issued everyone certificates verifying your participation in the unit. This was a way to vouch to the Russian authorities that you hadn't collaborated with the Germans. What became of the camp itself? The camp was pretty much destroyed. It was uh, broken down and burned, and we didn't want to leave anything for anybody that is to say that the the members of the camp destroyed the camp yes, themselves. Yes, yes, right. And so when he gave us those papers, we were like people coming out of the water, out of the sea. We had nothing. We had no no identity of any kind. So we were like nomads, and so that established our identity. You're freed from one camp, the forest camp, uh, but in short order, you go into another camp for, for displaced persons before coming to the United States. Right. And, and, and for a long time, like four years. Well, most countries really didn't want to take us in. We had to wait over four years for a quota. And what was life like for those four years? Did you feel like a prisoner? No, but you couldn't go anywhere. I mean, we could go out of the, of the camp and go to this little t- town. You could travel in Germany, but you couldn't leave the country. The camp was in Germany, yeah. Right, in Bavaria. And so, like I said, we had to wait for almost four and a half years for a visit to come to the United States. 
Your experience during the Holocaust led you to question, and I, I think ultimately doubt the existence of God. You write, I'd seen my share of miracles. I just stopped seeing God in the miracle. Uh, interestingly, your brother, Isaac, became an observant religious Jew in his adult life. Was it hard on him that you didn't turn to faith? We still argue like siblings do, but I don't know. I'm sure he would like me to be like him, but uh, we're different. Uh, do you have any items that you've kept from the forest camp? Was there any? My brother. Your brother. Yeah. <laughs> With whom you still argue. He's my keepsake. <laughs> How was the experience of writing this out? The, the... Writing it out was very, very hard. It's People ask me if it was cathartic for me to get it done. There's no catharsis in writing this kind of story. I just needed to tell the story because it's part of history, part of what happened to us, and I had to tell it the way it was. Why did you write the book now? The book was always in my mind to write it. So now that I'm, oh, gee, I'm past 70, and so I think, what if I'm not around forever? How, who is going to tell him the story? I'm sure my children probably will, but I really wanted to have it in a written form so it, they know that I said that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Holocaust survivor Paula Berger of Denver. She died Friday at age 85. We spoke in 2014 about her book, Paula's Window, written with Andrea Jacobs. And Paula Berger was a prolific artist. I've just tweeted a painting she did of her and her brother being rescued after the war. They're in front of a Russian tank. That's at CPR Warner. Okay, when we come back, empathy descends on Denver. Artists and big thinkers from across the Americas assemble in Denver this week for the Biennial of the Americas. This year's festival is all about empathy. Biennial CEO Aaron Trapp speaks with my colleague Avery Lill. Aaron, welcome. Thank you. You all actually came up with this theme of empathy several years ago. What was going on at the time that gave you all the idea to shape the Biennial of the Americas festival around the notion of empathy? So two years ago, when we were determining the festival's theme for the 2019, it was becoming very obvious that the national political conversation was making us all feel very divided, whether or not we really were. And when we looked to North and South America to see what was the ingredient that might be missing in the conversations at that time, it really did seem, seem like the deeper understanding that empathy was missing from, the, from our everyday interactions with everyone from world leaders to people you met on the street. So we wanted to focus on something that was, had a positive implication. You know, empathy and how you put it in action can really change those interactions. So that's what we were going for. And what exactly is the Biennial of Americas? Is it a festival with arts and culture as a part of it? Or is it an arts festival using arts to address bigger ideas? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it's a little bit of both. We call ourselves a festival of ideas, art, and culture. And we really do hope that by bringing people together around culture and art, around solutions, then we'll all have better relationships, whether they're business relationships, working relationships, or just, you know, interpersonal relationships. We just want people to have better connections with their closest neighbors. In this festival, it features a number of clinicas, and these are discussions with people who spend a lot of time thinking about a particular subject. Things like housing, education, jobs, the economy. And this all ties back to the theme of empathy and action. What's a clinica that you're particularly excited for this year? 
So one of the most exciting clinics, I think, is one that wasn't really obvious when we first started, but it's called uh, Sustainable Fashion, Slow Your Fashion. And the idea is that everybody thinks about sustainability in terms of recycling or driving less, and all those are important. But fashion is actually one of the biggest contributors to the landfill, particularly sort of disposable fashion as we have it today. So when we looked at issues that people really cared about, we wanted to give people things they could really connect to. So I think the idea of coming for two hours and just thinking and, and hearing about how you might be able to improve your own sustainable uh, out, outlook on life by what you wear. That's a fun, but also kind of interesting and edifying thing to do. And that we can even think empathetically about the clothes we put on our body <laughs> is a really interesting exactly. idea. Exactly. <laughs> so what are some of the ways that experts think that we can be more empathetic when it comes to some of these other topics like housing or maybe transportation, which is the subject of another clinica? Yeah. So the fundamental idea here is that empathy can be taught. Empathy is like any other skill. It's like a muscle. You have to exercise it and use it. Otherwise, it sort of goes dormant. So with our workshops, and uh, in, in one workshop called Applied Empathy, where we really have somebody who is an expert who's going to come in and teach you that very thing, the idea is just to put yourself in the perspective of another person and really understand, not just sort of give lip service to what might be going on in their lives, but to really, in a way, take a viewpoint that isn't your own before you start making a judgment. And so there's a, a sequence to events that you want to happen to make sure that empathy kind of comes along with you during the whole conversation, rather than just starting from your own dug-in position, which we've all been known to do. And you can apply that to those specific areas, like exactly. housing and transportation. Exactly. As you put this program together, was there an idea from any of the programming that completely blew your mind? <laughs> yeah, so we've got one clinical workshop on marketing across international borders. And one of the case studies that we're using is Topo Chico, the sparkling water from Mexico. And it just, when I first heard about this, I just had a head-scratching moment, like water from Mexico? Because, you know, growing up here, when you went to Mexico, you were told not to drink the water. And yet the hippest product in, you know, the past couple of years is this sparkling water from Mexico. And it's something that you get in all the bars and you pay $5 for a single serving. So to me, the idea that this could be something that was kind of sweeping our country had to come from a place of where people were willing to consider that water from Mexico is something that they'd want to pay $5 for. So that just sort of blew my mind. And we, we kind of built a, a conversation around the idea that when you start with empathy, you can go surprising places when you market products. This year's big symposium, it features Richard Branson, and he owns the multinational conglomerate company Virgin Group. A wealthy businessman seems like an odd choice for the headline of an event about empathy. Why did you want to feature him? So Richard Branson might not be the first person you think of when you think about the business of empathy. But as an innovator and a disruptor, he has spent the better part of the last decade really refocusing his efforts on things like sustainability in the Caribbean, things like leadership that can make big differences in the serious problems around the world. So he's someone that I think um, has an image that isn't necessarily aligned with the real substance that he brings to the conversation. So we wanted people to really hear from him and understand how someone from that stature, from that level, can use the, the position they have to try to build empathy and leadership among other people. We also wanted to bring Jorge Ramos in to make that conversation really focused on the Americas because Richard Branson has done an extraordinary amount of work in the Americas, both on the entrepreneurial side and on the philanthropic side. So I think it's just going to be a fascinating conversation and the whole thing really is built around empathy. And it's part of this idea that empathy goes all the way up in a business and those relationships are important. Well, empathy starts from the top in many ways, right? I mean, if you have someone like Richard Branson making the point that it's important to participate in sustainability, it's important to make sure that you're executives are held accountable for the values that you want to see in your company, then it makes a real difference.
There will be a big light and sound installation on display this week at Denver's Civic Center Park, and it will be the site of the festival's closing night party. This installation is considered the cultural centerpiece of the event. Will you describe it for me? Absolutely. So we always like to end with kind of an epic party. And we have brought the most extraordinary large-scale jaguar sculpture that has lights and sound coming out of it, kind of like a laser uh, program like you'd see in a planetarium. That'll be outdoors in the park, and it will also serve as a platform for music groups, some local favorites like Kiltro, uh, a fantastic group out of Colombia called Sistema Solar. It's just really an extraordinary event for the whole family to come and experience some sounds of the jungle in some cases, but also some really wonderful live music. And how does this tie into the theme of empathy in action? So the Jaguara sculpture was inspired by the part of the Amazon jungle in Colombia that has really been threatened since the end of their civil war. Ironically, that war was something that protected the Amazon for decades because the folks who were hiding from the, the army would actually protect the jungle. And now that the that conflict has ended, people are free to go in and deforest and farm and do all sorts of clear cutting that is really um, causing all kinds of trouble for the Amazon. So the jaguara, which jaguar is the apex predator of the Amazon, the jaguar uh, sculpture that we brought is intended to bring attention to that dynamic and to the need to protect the Amazon as a resource for generations to come. So the idea behind all of this is not just to talk about empathy, but to get people to take action. When all is said and done with the festival this weekend, what are you hoping comes next? We really do want people to turn what they learn at the festival into some kind of action. And in some cases, it might be something very small. If someone comes to the closing night party and feels like they want to participate in uh, efforts to protect the Amazon, however that works for them, that would be tremendous. Other people might use what they've learned or employ relationships that they've learned to change the direction of something they're doing in their daily life or in their business. So what we want people to come away with is a sense of inspiration and hopefulness and hopefully an urgency to actually engage in solutions. Erin, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Erin Trapp, who leads the Biennial of the Americas, speaking with my colleague Avery Lill. The festival opens in Denver Wednesday and runs through the weekend. Okay, we're going to dance it out. Thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.